Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I am your host, Brian, and today's guest is Alexandra Rowland. Alexandra is the author of several fantasy books, including A Conspiracy of Truths, A Choir of Lies, and Some by Virtue Fall, as well as the co-host of the Hugo Award-nominated podcast, Be the Serpent, which is great, but currently on hiatus. Alexandra holds a degree in world literature, mythology, and folklore from the Truman State University. Can imagine what I'm going to talk about on this podcast one. (laughs) Alexandra's latest novel, A Taste of Gold and Iron, was just published on August 30th, 2022. It is available anywhere and wherever you buy your books. Um, I checked out the reviews on Goodreads, and it seems like it is just crushing it and slaying. Um, so make sure you check it that is, one out. It is really trucking, trucking along, which is awesome. just amazing to, to, to see. Awesome. Alexander, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, I, I love talking about writing and, uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to chatting with you about this stuff. It's everyone's favorite topic. Talking yeah. About, talking, <laughs> talking, talking, talking about writing. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to talk, I, I am deeply interested in, uh, mythology and folklore. I, I want to mm. get to that. I want to get to that topic because I just think, uh, there's so much there's so, I mean, there's an entire podcast, entire show just on that. I mean, you get to talk mm-hmm. endlessly on those, on those topics. Um, but here's what I'm going to start first. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember your very first story? Uh, the first story that I ever like wrote on purpose as a story or the first story that I ever heard. As I always answer on the show, whichever whichever option you want to choose, whichever one has more resonance to you. Sure, sure. Um, well, I think that I think the first option, like the first story that I ever wrote, is um, probably a little bit more relevant to the topic on hand. Well, I guess I, I guess it could go either way. <laughs> um, I was like seven years old, and one of my aunts and uncles had given me a like cute little diary thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I just started, I was like, I don't know what to write in this. I'm not really interested in writing down my actual like inner thoughts, partially because I'm seven years old, partially, (laughs) partially because I have a baby sister who absolutely would nose into all my stuff. So I started using it to uh, write down a story about um, like a princess and her lady in waiting and I remember that they did like three things, which was one, answer fan mail, uh, two, like go dress shopping or like sewing a dress, something to do with a dress. And three, the princess then went to court to hear petitions from the peasants about how their lives were terrible. And she made like all of these reforms to (laughs) government, which um, kind of is like me roasting myself because (laughs) since I, since I was seven years old, my interests have not changed at all. I'm still writing these stories about like, uh, like people who care about their communities and also like economics comes up a lot in my books. Right. Like I've always been on my bullshit, Brian is, is what this comes down to. <laughs> it's interesting because I've, I've asked that question a fair amount of times on the show. Cause it, I think it's so interesting to go back and think about the Pretty first start. Yeah. yeah the, the, the first like child stories, you know, the first stories that had no filter. Yeah. And one thing I found to be incredibly consistent is a lot of people are pretty much up to the same thing, you know, yep. however many decades later, they're still yep. kind of writing and circling around the same topics. And I, I'm sure there's something more in that to unpack. There's something, mm-hmm. there's something deep in our psyches and unconscious minds that there there's to read into that. I don't know that answer. It's just, it's always such an interesting place to kind of start yeah. and, yeah. and frame I mean, up. Sort of like, like what's your favorite color right and a lot of the times like the favorite colors or at least like maybe there's a handful of of colors that you liked as a kid those tend to continue to when you're a grown-up like whether you liked warmer colors like red or yellow or cool colors like blue purple green 
Um, I still like blue, purple, and green now just right. as much as I did when I was a kid, you know? Uh, so I think that, I think that we don't often give kids enough credit for like knowing what they like. Yeah. And I think also, I think that also like as we become adults, we sort of are forced by society a lot of the times to abandon the things that we like because right. like society thinks that those things aren't cool, right. um, except they are cool just because you like them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because um, children bring a freedom to creation that is largely absent, I feel like, in adulthood. Mm -hmm. So I, I have two yeah. daughters, um, and they're like in prime creation age. They're 10 and 7. And so, you know, they have a broad imagination. They have command of language. They can read. They can write. They're kind of past that hump of like, it's just tactile interaction. Like I see a, a shape and I want to interact with a shape too. I can create something. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how free they are in that world. Like they can yeah. just create shit that makes no sense and have a blast in it. And I always yeah. watch them and I'm always like, wow, that's interesting that like they don't have a voice telling them not to create in a certain way and how right. much more joy they pull from it. And I'm sure, again, there's some lesson in that. Yeah, um, I, I think it's just that like kids haven't been trained to be afraid of mistakes right like like kids right. make mistakes all point. the time right and yeah. sometimes those mistakes don't pan out and they burn their hand on the stove and that's not good um or sometimes an adult yells at them because they're doing something they shouldn't be doing but yeah like when you're when you're a kid like you don't have that fear that's holding mm -hmm. you back and, and weighing you down so that i i completely agree with you i do think that children have that that freedom more and i think that adults can get past that and can get back to that a little bit, but it takes a lot of work just to yeah. sort of deprogram all of the things that society has told you about, like how you're supposed to be and like what play means. So many adults just have forgotten how to play. Uh, mm. And it's really tragic when you start thinking about it. Yeah. And what, what do you think uh, as you think about play as work, right? Mm. Like, like there, there's this thing we homeschool our, our our kids and one thing that's really popular in the homeschool world is like um play is i was, the I was homeschooled as well by the way okay okay, okay. so, <laughs> so, so cool, play, cool. yeah play is like the child's work like that that's serious yes. work for a child to play yes. like it is it is a big deal for children to play yes. um so uh, as you think of, as you think about there's probably, you know, adults out here who listen to the show. I don't think any children listen to this that I know of. Who knows? But uh, there's probably adults out there as they hear you say that. They say, wow, I haven't played in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and that play is probably really negatively in interacting or suppressing their creative freedom. And so I'm yeah. curious, like from your perspective, like how how have you found ways to play that have served your creativity and your storytelling? Yeah. Um, well, I decided that I wanted to be a professional fantasy author when I was 11 years old. Um, and that has always been something that I've walked towards step mm -hmm. by step. Um, so I've never been in a position to entirely forget how to play. Um, I did to some extent, because I don't think that any of us is free from that social programming entirely. Um, but like I, I mentioned that I was also homeschooled. And so like I had that freedom, at least to some extent, um, like freedom from the the structure, right, to sure. explore sure. and to, to test things out. Um, how other people might get back to it, I think would depend on um, basically like their personal situation, their interests, their, their strengths. Um, I have, of course, you know, found a lot of freedom through uh, reading uh, books. Um, I've found a lot, actually uh, writing fan fiction has been a really big thing for me, um, both when I was a teenager and then I took a, a break for about 10 years from college to about the age of like 28, 29 or so. Um, and then I really got back into it um, just the last few years. I'm 32 mm -hmm. now. Um, just that ability to take a set of things and then use my imagination as a tool to extrapolate mm -hmm. those things. 
Um, some people do this through art, some people do this through writing or dance or any other kind of um, creative pursuit. Uh, I'm hesitate, and I, I think that like if you haven't done it for a while, if you're trying to get back to that place, starting with something like reading more books or even yeah. like playing video games, um, yeah. anything that gets your brain moving, solving logic puzzles like Einstein puzzles, like if so and so lives in the blue house and so and so lives in the greenhouse, who eats cereal for breakfast? Right, <laughs> um, right. Like anything that gets the juices of your brain movulating sort of like like getting your blood pumping by going mm -hmm. out and exercising going for a jog right um you can go for a jog with your brain and kind of exercise those brain muscles get yourself thinking solving problems um this is what the human brain was evolutionarily designed to do right yeah. like yeah we as as creatures get so much joy and validation from solving problems and mm. putting puzzles together uh and so really going back to those kind of like instinctual evolutionary roots as it were um i think can be a really good step towards just like opening the door a little bit and like taking that first step mm. into having more creativity in your life mm. i like i like that um and you use two words that are kind of a perfect segue to to what i want to chat about you next about which is instinctual and evolutionary, which mm. brings me to the topic of mythology and folklore. See how I can connect those Certainly things. Wonderful transition. <laughs> wonderful. Very good. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> I, I, I'm a huge, um, a huge mythology fan, a huge mm. folklore fan. In fact, uh, every night um, I read myths or folk tales from kind of across uh, the human story. So kind yeah. of we, we, in the Western world, we have a very certain set of myths and folk tales that we're familiar with that come from a Western tradition, but um, it's fascinating to read folk tales specifically uh, from across the world. And every mm. period and every corner of the globe has their own folk tales. It's it's mm. fascinating that that is the truth, right? That there actually is folk tales from every part of the planet is kind of a mind. It blows your mind just that, but then the similarities start to then blow your mind even more. Um, yeah. And so here's here's where I, where I want to start. It's a very broad um, question for you. But I think we can dive off into this whole topic from here, which is what can modern, modern, and I think probably everyone who's listening to this show is probably largely Western storytellers learn mm. from folktales, from mythology, like, like, Mm -hmm. What is the richness there for them to tap into as they think about their own stories and storytelling journey? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great question, and honestly, that's something that, like, like is uh, you said at the beginning of the episode, like we could spend a whole show talking about. That. <laughs> yeah, right, right. right. Uh, uh, like, I'm I'm sort of sitting here, like, oh, where do I even start? Um, so I, I read a book called The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human by Jonathan Gottschall. Uh, and it was amazing. I highly recommend it. And it's yeah. all about like what stories are for from a, an evolutionary perspective, going back to, to your very good transition here. Uh, <laughs> like what do they what do they do for us as creatures, right? Like why did we evolve this this tradition why did we evolve this brain that latches onto stories yeah. so well um and what jonathan gottschall says in his book is that stories are kind of a flight simulator for the human brain they're a way for us to act out events before we have to encounter them which means that when we encounter something unexpected we are better at reacting instantly rather than mm. having to stop and get paralyzed paralyzed by choices about what we're supposed to do they all they also um reinforce cultural values like if a stranger comes to your door on a rainy night and begs you for shelter what is the correct way to act stories tell us that um what they can do for us as writers and the richness that that they can tap into is that you can and you can see this with my uh, my first book uh, a conspiracy of truths you can tell so much about the values of a place um, about the values of a community by the sorts of stories they tell and the uh 
the mm. contexts in which they tell them, who it is that gets to tell stories, who gets stories told to them. Um, and it's, it's a way for humans to connect to each other. It's a way to learn empathy. Um, I, there was a, a scientific study, I think, that I heard of once, which showed that people who heard a story just before they took a test to um, measure their empathy scored higher than the people who didn't hear the story first. Totally believe that. Um, yeah, yeah it's exactly yeah, right. Like totally so just that. the yeah. experience of imagining someone else and imagining how that other person might feel. You, once again, it's it's working those muscles. It's getting those those muscles stronger. Um, so from from my per position as a fantasy author, of course, like I use a lot of uh, mythology, folk tales. Um, I also sort of tie religion into this because so mm -hmm. much of religion involves like the stories that people tell to each other. Um, and so, yeah, like it's, it's a, a huge, vast amount of, of richness to tap into. Like you can, you can get anything that you need to communicate to the reader. You can tell in your story, the stories that the characters are telling each other. Yeah. That's, that's super, um, that's super interesting. I have a, I have a bunch of follow-up questions but but i uh i just want to share one time i made a comment and it didn't go off super well but you bring up religion just kind of made me think about it and i was like yeah why not here we are which is um that i i i told somebody and i shouldn't have told this exact person this it didn't it, it was not the right person to say this to but i said yeah the success of a religion really depends on the the power of their story mm. and and uh like you don't have a successful religion without powerful stories like that's just not you don't have happen. a successful anything. You don't have a successful right. anything without powerful stories, right? Like right. you don't have successful politics without powerful stories. That's all that politics is, right. is the stories that you're telling about the other guy. Yeah, right, um, right. And, and why this thing is bad. So you need to, to vote for me so that I can make the bad thing not happen. That's like what the heart of politics is. It's yeah, like right, right. stories about all the boogeymans in yeah. like everyone's closets. Um, and, you know, like this has absolutely been used for evil. Um, uh, Hitler used folklore and mythology a huge amount yeah. to establish a nationalist yeah. identity um, and commit atrocities. So as much like it's it's such a powerful tool and you can use it for good as much as you can use it for evil um, yeah. just because of how deep a hold it has on the human psyche. Yeah, yeah. Storytelling Animal, just to give it another plug, is a fantastic book if mm. you like the nuts and bolts um, of it, just to just to kind of reinforce a book that you called out. So um, I actually just did a podcast just uh, yesterday, maybe the day before, I was just recording an episode, and we were talking a lot about uh, the concept of like uh, the shared unconscious mm. um, and how that kind of bubbles into the, the word that the Jungians brought to it is archetypes. And archetypes hmm. is something that's uh, pulled largely from mythology. A lot of them are named after mytholo mythological uh, um, characters, creatures, yeah. characters. <laughs> They're not creatures. <laughs> yes, they are. But um, as you're writing, how, how aware are you of archetypes? How much do you use them in your own work? Do you model characters mm -hmm. off of them? Are they there for something not to do, maybe? How do you think about that? Yeah. That's a that's a another great question. Um, there's archetypes for characters, and then there's also tropes for plot right. beats. Um, right. And tropes <laughs> are sort of the archetypes of of plot, right? Um, so I I would say that I am fairly aware of it, just because like of course like I have a, a background in and mythology, and there's something that I'm quite aware of. Um, and it's it's kind of a good shorthand to be able to think about these situations in a, a quick and efficient way mm -hmm. rather than getting like bogged down in all of like the details about one character or another. I can just sort of like, it's like, like when you have a, um, a cork board and you just like scroll a couple notes on a couple post-it notes and then you just like move them around on the cork board to sort of see how they fit together. It's like that version <laughs> of writing. Yeah. And then, of course, like when you go to actually write the story, of course, you go into more detail. You get into all the nuance. You 
find the ways in which a character um, conforms to their archetype or deviates from it. Um, sometimes you look at what the archetype would do and then choose a different path in order right. to sort of subvert expectations. Um, I think that like the the idea of archetypes is uh, is good for that kind of like very broad scale like big 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 picture work um it becomes but it's like a, a fractal thing where like the mm -hmm. closer you get the more and more detailed it gets uh it's and so like when you're writing a full novel um by the time that you get 50,000 or 80,000 words into it um you've kind of forgotten about the archetype because then it's just the character in front of you who is behaving in the ways that they behave as a person rather than having anything to do with the archetype so the yeah. archetype becomes more of like an an ancestor of the character rather than the character themselves yeah yeah, I really like, I, I love that last line that becomes an ancestor of the character. I think you get too close to some models. I, I'm a huge fan. I mean, like, I think writers, for whatever reason, learn writing really painfully. And I'm a mm. huge fan of of using models. Um, yeah. From plot Use models, the you have. Yeah, the plot models yeah. archetypes, Enneagram numbers. Like, it's okay to get started with something and get a head start, right? Like you don't yeah. have to start a, a book or a project and be like, I have no idea about anything. I'm going to have to create everything from scratch like that. You don't have to do it that way. You can, but you don't have to. You don't have to. And yeah. as a writer, I really look, I really like looking at the way that other artistic professionals practice their art. Yeah. For example, like a painter doesn't start most painters. Okay. Like, of course there's geniuses out there, right, right. but most people, most painters start out with a sketch right? and they just sort of like get the, the sort of shape that they want, or they do like a little thumbnail um, on a, a bit of scrap paper just to get kind of like an idea of like where things are arranged. And then they add in the values, where are the shadows and the highlights, and they get progressively more and more detailed until they have the finished painting. That's kind of how I think of archetypes. Archetypes are just sort of an outline. They're not yeah. like a whole picture of themselves. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to, there's a quote I read somewhere, and I, I don't know if it's young. I mean, you can, if anyone, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, you've listened to the past, like maybe five or 10 episodes, you can tell <laughs> what social psychologists are, uh, that I've been reading a lot of, which is Mr. Mm. Carl Jung, but I don't know if it's young or if it was somebody else is it basically saying that like there there isn't a story that will have broad appeal into the masses that is not based on archetypes that like, mm -hmm. like truly the archetype is the key towards mass appeal because it's it's something whether or not whether or not you have learned it or not it is something that is written into the code of what it is to be a human that these archetypes are understood by everyone regardless of where they're mm. born or their circumstance or whatever it might be mm, um, mm. I'm, I'm wondering think, is as you hear that like what's your reaction so overall i would agree the way that i would word it and i think that i have either written this in a, in a book before or like said it out loud in other interviews um the way that i would word it is people like songs that they know the words to mm. like when you hear a new song on the radio the first time you hear it, it's probably not your favorite song. The first time you hear it, you might go, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of catchy. I, I enjoy that. Um, and it's not until you hear it three, four, five, six times until you're going, oh, my God, this is my favorite song. Yes, turn the radio all the way up. Um, and so so it's it's that familiarity that lets you connect to yeah. to the work. Um and it's it's the familiarity that lets you connect to the story as well. Like you you feel comfortable because you know something about some part of it. Either um, and and this is how people choose what genres they want to read, right? Like if you're reading a mystery, you know something about the book. You're not just going in blind to read any book, right? Um, you're you know what to expect overall with a mystery you know the shape of the story that you're in the mood for if you read a romance novel you know what you're signing up for you know the right. shape of the story um 
if you read fantasy or science fiction and like with each genre it's a slightly different shape because each person has slightly different preferences uh but we we like feeling like we're on familiar ground so that then we can and we like being able to lean on those familiar things so that we can then learn the new stuff if everything is just all new to you most people i would say would find that overwhelming and possibly a little bit hard to connect to yeah i totally um, agree yeah 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 there's something there's something um kind of having gone through formal writing training mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and getting the the hollowed mfa and and kind of going through that process one one of the things i realized is that like a lot of literature that's um you know we would call you know just whatever genre of literature it might be um it tends to be really inaccessible because it's because it is really shapeless um mm. there's there's very little sometimes by way of plot or even by way of character arc or development uh there's very little that you can expect and so each page kind of demands your full attention each chapter becomes an investment um mm. and there's just something there's something that uh doesn't have the i think you said the familiarity of a story structure or a story that like i at least am I know what hands I'm in here. I know roughly yeah. what to expect. And it doesn't, again, that doesn't make projects right or wrong. It just, it just is um, going to, I think, have an impact on like readership or, you know, the type of person, if you want anyone even to read it, just one of those yeah. things, another thing to consider um, as you're creating projects. I, I, I'm almost out of time with you, which blows my <laughs> mind because this always happens, but I actually want to really quickly, if we can, I, I want to transition to another topic and it's a brand new sure. topic for, the How Right is Right podcast. So this is like drum roll moment. If I did sound effects in the background for the show, I'd do a drum roll right now, but we don't. So just imagine <laughs> it in your brain that we're doing a drum roll. I mean, this is this is a podcast all about like using your imagination, right? Yeah, so right. let's all correctly like use our imagination to imagine the best drum roll happening yeah, right here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just imagine the drum roll. So um, one of the topics I've been talking a lot about, thinking a lot about in my work and with other folks as well is um, sentence construction. And, mm. and how a writer approaches a, a sentence, which, you know, in a lot of ways is the unit of work for the, for the creative writer. Mm. Um, words I know are, are important, but I, I kind of view the sentence as being the workhorse. And so yeah. um, how do you think about sentence construction as you're both creating for the first draft and then as you're editing later and working out the kinks that are inevitable on the heels mm. of a first draft? This is a fascinating question. I've never been asked this before. And yet hey. it's like something, it's like something that I think that I and many writers spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. Because yeah, exactly. like it, it's so essential to like, like you could have framed this as like, what are your opinions on voice? Uh, which is part of it, but it's not all of it, right? Right. Um like as you I want the nuts and questions. bolts. You know what I mean? I like right. like voice and th those are all important, but I want like literally how do you, how, how do you think about the, the construction of each one of those sentences which is like prime right. real estate for your novel it's all like live and die yeah. in each sentence yeah right 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 that's a great question um the two so first of all another book that i would recommend is the elements of eloquence by mark forsyth which mm. is a book about the figures of rhetoric um it's brilliant uh it talks about the ones that everybody knows, like alliteration and metaphor, but then also it gets into all of these like way more obscure, at least to me when I first read this book, um, figures of rhetoric that you don't get taught in grade school or college unless you take those specific classes like right. conjuries or metonymy or zugma or like all of these things that I had never heard of. They're I don't even know those words. Like I don't, right? I've never I even heard those words before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, we, we don't have a lot of time for for me to explain the definition of all of them. I'm trying yeah. to we'll yeah. try to keep it uh, streamlined. Uh, please look up the book if you would like to know okay. uh, the meanings of those words. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But uh, so that's that's one thing that I'm considering in the construction of a sentence is like how it sounds, the rhetoric of it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm looking for. Um, Ideally, I'm looking 
to write a sentence that is going to be effortless or nearly effortless for the reader to read. Ideally, I would like the reader to be doing very little effort at actually understanding what I'm saying so that mm. they can be devoting all of the energy of their brain to imagining the story that is being put in front of them. Mm. I want the language to be beautiful, but weightless, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love um, that. That yeah. can be really hard to achieve. Yeah. Um, the other, I, I'm also thinking of another book and I don't remember which one it was. It might've been Eat Shoots and Leaves, which is a book about grammar that like everyone has mm -hmm. read. Um, I don't remember if that's Anne Lamott or someone else. Anyway, I think it was in that book where um, the author was writing about how punctuation was originally, like punctuation in the English language, at least, was invented as basically musical notation for monks who were reading out of the Bible in church um, so that they would know where to stop, pause, take a breath, where to stop for a longer pause, um, both for the rhythm of what they were reading and also for their own stamina so that they don't right. run out of breath in the middle of a sentence so that they can make like this thing that is so holy and sacred to them sound as good as possible to everyone who is listening to them. Um, so I, I also think about uh, punctuation in that way when I'm writing, punctuation as musical notation so that someone knows where to stop, take a breath. Um, there's ways that you can, the ways in which you can force a pause, the more ways that you have to do that, <laughs> the more powerful I think your writing becomes. Right. Um, like the way that you can force the reader's brain to just pause for a split second just by putting a sentence in its own isolated paragraph right? Or a scene break or a chapter break. Like those are all different or a period. Those are all different lengths of pause, depending on how sort of how much of a, a sharp break you want to put in the, the reader's thoughts, the, like the flow of their thoughts. Yeah. That's kind of like, I don't know if I fully answered the question, but also I don't know if this is a question that can be fully answered in just like two minutes of talking I don't think about it. Can. it. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can. And I'm now like, there was too much. This always happens, but there's too much that I want to ask about. It's like, I want to talk about mythology <laughs> and folklore, but I also want to talk about sentence, sentence construction. Yeah. Um, let me it's ask a great you this. question though. Yeah. Where, where does, and, and we'll end on this question before I start getting to my um, final questions that I have for you. But okay. where, where does a lot of the work of your sentence construction happen? Are you doing it while you're doing a first draft composition mm -hmm. or are you going back in the editing and rewrite process, which if you're a new writer out there, just know for 99% of writers, most of the work of writing happens in editing um, and the rewrite, like very few writers write perfect prose out the gate. Like a lot of people have to go back and do a lot of work to make yeah. their, their, their project sometimes readable, but curious, where does that like sentence construction yeah. happen for you? I, well, I, I'm, I think I get, part of it is, just to bounce off something you said was that it, part of most of the work happens is how you define work, right? Mm. Because if it's like a lot of the like really engineering parts, like taking a step back and looking at it and tinkering with it until it fits just right. Yes, of course, like that for a lot, most people that is more revision. Um, some people don't have as much trouble with revision than they mm -hmm. do with producing the words. Um, like some people it is just like a huge effort to produce the words and put them on paper and revising comes a lot easier for them. Depends on what kind of writer you are. There's obviously no right way to do it. Um, for me, on a really good writing day, I can kind of get into a flow state where I'm not even, I'm sort of like suspended weightless about, or like one step removed from the prose. And it's as if my hands are writing the sentence on their own. Mm. I realize this sounds crazy from the outside, but just earlier this year, I um, was having some health problems with your hands. There's a good thing to remind new writers of is take care of your hands. Take care of your hands. Um, yep. Take care of your hands, practice good writing or good typing habits um, or ergonomics with whatever system you're using. Um, you will thank yourself later. Anyway, I was having some trouble with my hands earlier this year and I tried out dictation. And what I found 
was that it was so much harder for me to compose with my voice out loud, mm -hmm. at least in, in for prose writing, than it was to type. My hands somehow have brains of their own, or they have learned writing in a different way than my voice has. Yeah, right, right. So it was it was just a really eye-opening experience to try out dictation, um, like speech to text, to see if that worked any better for me. And it was just so much harder because I I didn't have the the practice with it. Yeah, I, I actually I, I had an interview with it um, with an author. I mean, it was a while ago, and he was saying that he writes and then kind of has like a walk and on his walk, he'll often dictate an entire chapter mm. and come back and, and we'll have another kind of chapter done. Yeah. And so I he think inspired. it's great to experiment with different yeah. kinds of tools. Yeah. So he inspired sure. me and I tried it. Uh, I how, went on a long walk and I dictated and it was, it was like, it was like it was like if you could dig the deepest hole possible and pour the most amount of gasoline and and firewood <laughs> and radioactive yep. material down there and drop that recording down there and burn it, it still wouldn't yeah. be sufficient to destroy it to the depths. I wish I could destroy that. that I feel that dictation. so hard. Yeah, it it nearly it's made me like hard. quit. I was almost like I'm not a writer. Like it was so bad that I was like I don't even Gosh. know if I can keep doing this anymore because it was so awful. So yeah. uh, sometimes dictation works. I think some people can do that really well. Um, I think yeah. I think you know, like my, my wife, um, thinks and, and, uh, through talking something out. Um, mm. and so for her dictation might be a tool that's really powerful for me. Um, I think by just sitting by myself and like putting on noise canceling headphones and hopefully yeah. nobody looks at me that that's like um, my style, you know what I mean? So I don't know. Yes. Talking doesn't, doesn't seem to do the trick. I, I figure out things about the book by talking them out, ideally with a friend who's really good at asking questions. Yeah. Um, but then to like actually write it down, I need to let my hands do that. Yeah, um, for me also, like just the uh, speech to text software that I was using, because I'm a fantasy writer, like my work just has a lot of bullshit fantasy words in it. And so when I was revising, it was incredibly disheartening to have to chain, like correct every character's name yeah, um right. all of like the fantasy words i was using all of the other just like times that the the software misheard me that was like pulling teeth it was terrible yeah um i am much more comfortable with producing words than i am with yeah, revising words right. i think it's, it's the the conclusion that we have come to here yeah it's like at a certain point it's like what's the point like this this is just more pain than it's pleasure you know like right 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 yeah. Um, on the other hand, like dictation can lead you to some serendipitous mistakes. There was mm. something in the story that I was writing where the software misheard poems as poems, which led to a, it, as I was revising, I was, or no, it was as I was writing it, like I just watched this word come up and I went, oh, actually, if this character is made of poems, and he extends, it was a, a whole thing. The character was like a, oh, a interesting. god of bards. Um, anyway, so it, it turned out to be a, a, like open some, some really creative doors. And that wouldn't have happened if that error hadn't come in. Oh, that's um, super interesting. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was. Um, I don't think I'll go back to dictation, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, um, it, it's there if somebody needs it, but you've heard us bash it for the past five minutes so probably nobody will even try it but it, listen if it if it works for you <laughs> hell yeah go for right, it right like, right look for the tools that make your job as easy as possible no matter what they are 100 percent, yeah 100 percent. um okay so uh here we are at the point of the show where i get to ask you my final six questions used to be yeah. i think it started with three and then four and then five and then now we're up to six so i i think it's like every six months i i add a new question so now we're up to now we're up to six so um i i always give this kind of same preamble to uh to why i do these questions the first reason is because i like the answers and it's my show and i get to do what i want to ask what questions oh, yeah. i want and so i do it but the second reason is because so much of the show the point of it is to encourage and inspire and just give thought to how you know, as listeners, it, finding your way to create, there is not one mm -hmm. right way. Like you can mm -hmm. read all the books in the world, but ultimately one of the hard tasks of writing and storytelling is finding the ways 
you put words on the page. That really yes. is a huge part of this journey. And so I hope that these answers just kind of take the pressure off that there's not some guru out there with the answer, the answers inside of you, but also mm -hmm. maybe help you laugh or get some ideas or some inspiration. And generally it's a good time. So preamble out of the way, uh, I'm going to dive into the first question, which is also the newest question of the bunch. Uh, but I like it, which is this, um, how do you view your role as a storyteller? So this is all of your questions have been great. I feel a little bit silly saying, oh, that's a great question every <laughs> single time, but it's true. They are. Um, so you. when I'm thinking about, about being a storyteller, I'm often thinking a lot about my audience, um, either like a, a literal person who I'm looking forward to reading the book, like, uh, like a friend, um, like, oh, I, I can't wait until this friend reads this book or just sort of a hypothetical person. Um, and my approach to it is that I want to be hospitable. Just to, like, the, like I often imagine it as the audience is someone coming over to my house for dinner. And if I'm inviting a guest over for dinner, I want the house to be clean. Um, I want uh, dinner to be like planned out uh, and I want to have all the materials ready for it. Um, when someone comes in the door, I invite them to take off their shoes. I give them a comfy place on the couch. I ask them if I can get them a drink. Um, I tell them what we're planning on having for dinner. Is that okay? Um, that sort of thing. And so I'm, when, as a storyteller, you are being given, your readers are putting trust in you. You are being entrusted with their hearts and their minds and hmm. their imagination for however long you have them. And I think this is something that we need to take seriously as writers, uh, that you are you are being given an honor, uh, the honor of this person's attention, and you need to take that seriously. So don't fuck around with your audience. Don't be rude to them while they're in your home. Mm -hmm. um, if you invite someone over for dinner, give them the best meal that you can, and don't and and give them space to enjoy it and have their own feelings right um and and try to just take care of them while they're under your roof is yeah. sort of yeah sort of my like philosophy that. yeah i like yeah. that it's very audience like it's very much like um the gift the gift of the book is like a bridge yeah. you know and to like yes, treat yes. it whole is a holy thing that you're giving Right, because yeah. it's it's one of the only ways that we have of time travel, right? Because mm. like I can read a book that was written 200 years ago, and if the author fundamentally understood something about my experience as a human being, in that moment, we have a connection, yeah. even though it's been 200 years. And that, I think, is the greatest thing that any storyteller can hope for, is that 200 years from now, you might have a connection yeah with someone who hasn't even been born yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Next question. What is the All one right. word that best describes you? Is this leading directly into the next question about my advice? We got a couple questions until then. Okay. I'll say the word and then I'll let you sort of we... simmer in what the fuck that means okay. until we get to why. <laughs> I just want, I just want to like let it, cause it's good. It's a weird word. And I don't want the audience to be like, what the fuck? I'm okay. leading to a point here. Okay. okay. It's like foreshadowing. <laughs> this okay. Is very, okay. It's like a writer trick. Okay. The word is cockroach. <laughs> I will okay. explain that. In, I will okay. explain that in the advice question. <laughs> I, I'm tempted just to dump, jump right to the advice question, but I, I'm going to let that simmer. Like, I actually think it's better to just be like, you got to stick like, around to the it. end. Now, quickly think about for, it for a minute. Yeah. Now, quick for an advertisement. Thing. Here from our sponsors. <laughs> the advice question wait. is like a good ending question. Okay. Too. Like you, okay. this is like a plot arc kind of, we're teaching people how to do a plot yeah. arc as well. Yeah, we opened a yeah. loop. Okay. Next question. If you uh, were able to be reincarnated as a book, right? So this is if you like died and you're able to yes. come back and spend all time as one book, what book would it be? Um. So I hope this doesn't sound too vain, but... Uh, my newest book that just came out, A Taste of Golden Iron, is the book of my heart. Mm. I spent six years and six or seven drafts writing this book. And it was really a journey of like 
coming closer and closer to the heart of everything that I love best in a book. Um, it was a like a self exploration of what do I find joy in, and and so the book is like deeply meaningful to me on that level because it helped me sort of rediscover joy in a way that I when I first started writing it six years ago I had been kind of disconnected from. Um, so like, I, I hope that doesn't weird to, to have the answer be like one of my own books, but like, it's just such a, a deeply important book that has like all of my favorite things and everything that I love in it. And it has been like really important to me on that level. Okay. Yeah. It, the, the, you, you are the, uh, answerer in chief. So you get to answer these as part, part of the fun okay. of the questions is that, is that you answer them however you want. Okay. Cool. Uh, next question. Is there a specific tool? Can be absolutely anything at all, pencil, software, chair, coffee, tea, anything that you mm -hmm. absolutely must have to write? Well, I think as we have, uh, we mentioned earlier when we were talking about dictation, apparently like I just need something for my hands to construct the sentence with, right, whether that's tight. a keyboard or whether that's pen and paper, like my hands are the smart ones here. <laughs> right. uh, and my, my hands are, are what they are, what are, are so much doing, or my hands are what are doing so much of the work of writing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, other than that, I like to be really flexible. I don't like to rely on just one thing. I like to be as sort of adaptable as possible so that I can, so that I'm not constraining my ability to write based on the availability of this tool. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I hear that. I think that's like, um, if, if you've ever grown over-reliant on a tool and you don't have it, you've probably felt yeah. that, that yeah. acute pain before, which I, I have, I'm speaking from experience of being like, oh, oh, yeah. I have this one thing and I can't write now. And that's just, that's, that's a big it's, limitation. It is. It is. Yeah. But I think it's a, a phase that all writers go through at some point in their writing apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, like you just sort of get this, not quite a superstition because that sounds a little bit derogatory, but like you, it's just part of the the process of like yeah. Yeah. learning how to write is this reliance on, on one thing. I don't think it's a bad thing, but also like, as long as you keep pushing yourself and growing, um, I think you sort of move away from needing those training wheels. Totally. Yeah. Um, okay, next question for you. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? Um, having a group of friends who are peers in my, at sort of, you know, at, at my level of the writing career who have similar goals to mine has been hugely helpful yeah. um, because those are the people who are, when something goes wrong, you cry to them in your group chat <laughs> instead of like putting it on Twitter. Uh, and you, so you have support then. You have people who uh, can help you work out plot problems if you're the sort of person who who um, talks about, uh, who, who untangles problems by talking about them. Um, that has been that has been the biggest thing for me is just yeah. like a group of a group of people. Um, I don't think that like it. Nobody does this job alone. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, like it takes a village to to raise a child yeah. uh, or to write a book. Um, so so yeah, just like having community support, um, and then also you feel like you're telling the story to someone, yeah. which I think is is really helpful as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally agree with that one. Um, it's yeah. hard to do this thing alone. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Okay. Now we're here. We are. Now we're at the final question. So now we get the big payoff from Cockroach. Uh, yes. Okay. Here it is. If you could give one piece of advice to new writers, what would it be? So this is about the publishing industry specifically. It's about people who are looking to have a career in writing, whatever that might be, whether that's just publishing a, a short story every now and then, whether your goal is to just publish one book and that's your big dream, um, whether you're going with traditional publishing or indie publishing, my big piece of advice is be a cockroach, <laughs> which means, <laughs> which means like this, the publishing industry is tough. It will try to grind you down. All you have to do to survive is be unkillable. 
Mm. right? Like be impossible to kill, be impossible to beat down, um, do not give up, survive the nuclear winter. And then after 200 years, when you have grown to 30 feet high as a result of all the radiation, then you just have a huge cockroach civilization uh, and rule the world. <laughs> I love so, it. I love so it. that's like, like, I saw a, a statistic once or heard it on Twitter. I don't remember how I got this, this in my head, but it said something like the group of people that you debut with when you publish your first novel in five years four out of five of them will have given up wow in 20 years or sorry no in 10 years 19 of 20 of them will have given up which is great news because it means that all you have to do is refuse to give up right as long as like the game isn't over until you decide it's over yeah. So as long as you stick it through, there's always another opportunity in the future. I love that. So I, I got my daily journal this year. Um, I got it. I don't even know what it's called. Whenever they like put words on the cover of something permanently, mm -hmm. I keep saying embroidered, but that's not the word. Whatever that is, like the words are written in it. Uh, it's a Babe Ruth quote that says it's really hard to beat the person who never gives up. Mm -hmm. And um, that that that's it. Yeah, that 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 it resonates with me, too. Yeah. Um, Alexandra, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing so much. Thanks for, um, just kind of authentically coming to the show and, um, sharing, you know, the, the hard won advice and hard won lessons. Mm -hmm. Uh, we all get to benefit, you know, from hearing your story and your journey. And there's just so many like amazing, uh, nuggets in there to pull out. And I'm sure everyone on the show, uh, who listens will, will feel the same as well. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. Thank you for asking all those wonderful <laughs> questions. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, if you haven't yet, please check us out on happywriter.co where you can join our writing membership for free. Come hang out with us. Enjoy a writing community. Also, leave us a rating review on iTunes if you can. It means the world to me. Lastly, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.